Welcome to Swift Unscripted, a podcast that gives you the opportunity to hear inside stories and be a part of the conversation with education leaders who are transforming schools to benefit each and every student, their families, and ultimately the communities in which they live. Oh, we're happy to have Dr. Kokithia Hale back on Swift Unscripted to talk about the big change. And when we're talking about that, we're talking about in this time, how do we really look at systems and how do we have an impact with so many challenges that are coming at educators today? So Kokithia, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Talk a little bit about your belief as to whether or not education systems can and will change. Well, I feel extremely hopeful that education systems will change and we will start to see an era of really sweeping and transformative policies that will, you know, just become more equitable for children that are often marginalized and the system. But I follow that up to say that systems will not change because we all have goodwill, right? And they will not change alone without a force really pushing and shifting. People run systems. And so it's how do we get the people together so that they can work collaboratively to shift these systems to more equitable and more impactful outcomes for children. What do you think has prevented systems from changing in the way that we would like thus far in education? Education is one of these spaces where there is so much intersectionality in the system with outside entities to educate a child, right? So you have textbook suppliers, you have state-level policy people creating standards and recommendations, you have curriculum and content. There are so many systems that are operating within our educational system. And I think for some, it has just been resisted to change in a transformative way. I think that we have seen over the last decade, a lot of debates and ideologies about how to reform education. But I think at this moment, we are coming to terms with, we have kind of gotten okay with the outcomes being the way that they are and just kind of centering that not in the systems, but in the parents and in the students and in the community and in the funding. We haven't really taken a look at the people that are running and leading and legislating change within the system. And so, you know, Dr. McCart, I have this analogy about the fish in the water, right? We are educating our kids in a toxic water, but we steady try to work on fixing fish. What can we do to, to help parents, to help the children, to help their families, you know, get better outcomes? And instead of saying, why is it that in our systems across this country, we are seeing so many of our kids that have language or children of color or a disability not get quality education? What is that? And why has it been such a steadfast outcome with all the reforms that have happened? Maybe we should take some time to really unpack what's happening for those kids in these systems. Sometimes it's hard to think about as an educator where you fit within this larger system and what you can do to make a change. And you've spoken a lot about sort of recognizing what your sphere of influence is, and you encourage educators to do that. Can you speak to that a little bit? 
Absolutely. I am uh, somewhat of a data nerd, so I always am looking for what's the baseline. On the best possible day, what are the outcomes that our systems are producing? What are the outcomes that are happening on my team? If I really want to take a, like a micro look. And how is the current state different, the idealistic state of where I see our schools or my team? And so when you look across, like, here's where we are, and here's where I would like to be, the dissonance in between the two, that's the space that you can really start unpacking and figure out how to change that. And so many of us are in positions where we can make change to get better outcomes, even on a micro scale, yet we're always so focused on those big kind of looming overhauling system changes. And uh, that can prevent us from actually doing anything, right? Because we get so overwhelmed with that. You shared the other day an example of a gentleman that you had the privilege of traveling with. Will you share that with our listeners? Absolutely. So I'm a board member for the Urban League of Greater Kansas City. And every year before the pandemic, we would take a group of leaders in Kansas City on a civil rights journey. And uh, we would leave Kansas City and we would head to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and we would go to the Legacy Museum uh, from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. That's the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson. Um, that is his museum. And then we would visit the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is basically a memorial to the over 44,000 African-Americans that were lynched. And so as we go through this journey and we are thinking about our own identities and our sphere of influence and what disparities do we see in our own kind of bucket of work, one of the gentlemen that leads a transportation authority said, you know, one of the things that I need to wrestle with as the CEO of this transit authority is how is it that the bus that traversed through the um, lowest life expectancy incomes, which have the highest level of poverty, how that bus, it costs $1.25. But in my business and entertainment districts, the streetcar is free. Like in this same system, for the folks who could afford to pay to get on the streetcar, it's free. And for the folks that have the least amount of resources that are trying to get to the doctor, trying to get to the grocery store, trying to get to places to get their kids back to school supplies or go to the school for a parent-teacher conference, they have to negotiate the few resources to pay to get on the bus. And so he started to pull his team together and start to look at ridership and data and put together a campaign to try to make transit free. And so I think that that's how we think that we need, you know, these huge data sets and we need to have five facilitators that come in and really help us unpack it. And then we need to get a trained psychologist to come in and make sure we're ready for change when really it can be as simple as saying, man, I've been seeing something and I know it doesn't feel right. And my data supports that the outcomes are disparate. How do I start to tease that out and right size that? And so I think that's an excellent example, but he had this epiphany because he had to be steeped in how structural racism and oppression and, and disparities have existed in a place like Kansas City. And so you still start to see vestiges of that, right? Because the streetcar is west of truce and to get on the bus is east of truce. And for those who live in Kansas City or you can pick a street in any other metropolitan city, there's a de facto segregation line. And for Kansas City, that's truth. 
And so we see it in so much data. But I mean, it's just as simple as that. Uh, what you're saying is he, because of this experience, he paused and said, here I am, I'm in this position of power, I have the ability to make change, and I'm realizing now because of this experience that there are some things that aren't right. We can take pause and say, wait a minute, how can I make a change? Absolutely. We've seen school boards around the country, particularly starting in Minneapolis, that said, hey, should we have SOR officers, you know, like police officers in our schools? Like, is that something we want to think about? And leading policy change to reallocate those resources from a disciplined, punitive security officer to a more social worker, caseworker? How can we leverage that same funding to support our students in a more positive way? And so again, someone taking a step back, school boards and saying, hey, let's look at this. Since we're seeing this relationship between students of color, black boys, brown boys, and police officers, and how is that playing out in our system of education? One look at data from any school district, you will see uh, from those that are uh, high concentrations of students of color, you also see high discipline. It's another opportunity for us to make one change and look at our sphere of influence, a school board, and how do we create policies and align resources to support what we say we wanna do for students. And there are many thousand other things that can happen. So people don't think, oh, there's nothing for me now. No, there's plenty of stuff. There's plenty out there for everyone to do. You told me the other day that Black people are forever changed. Mm -hmm. And they will not be silenced. Yeah. Speak to that a little bit. Black people have always had to live in a dual reality or have a dual existence. We often have to divorce what it means to live in America in black skin when we show up to predominantly white spaces that pretend to be race neutral environments. However, the lack of diversity in the company's leadership, the lack of diversity in its governance structures, the inequities in pay and promotion are all signals about the company's value and perspective on race. Many times when people of color speak on issues of race or racism or inequities within the company or organization, it creates tensions with their white peers. And when some white folks start to feel uncomfortable, the problems shift from addressing the valid issues that were raised to dealing with the person who raised the issue. Black people are often seen as not aligned to the company's ethos, labeled as troublemakers or intentionally excluded from the leadership meetings and opportunities for promotion. So in essence, to get ahead in a company has often meant that you are silent about the very issues that create tensions for you in the workspace. And, and that really is what is starting to change now. Black folks have realized is that that uh, creates a psychological and physiological illness within your body to have to show up like that each and every day. The organization doesn't get the best of you. You have no trust in the organization, so you're not wanting to give them the best of you. And you often just decide, either I'm just gonna deal with it when I come to work and check out, or I'm going somewhere. And so I think in this moment, Black people are realizing like, it doesn't matter if I'm in a leadership position and have a title with no power and agency because I'll be sick. I'll be sick, I'll be depressed. I will be ill, I will 
sometimes feel like I'm losing my mind. And now we're in a space where to get it out, to see your work and to really build these relationships to change the odds for kids or systems, that's the work you really wanna be doing. That's the work that is cathartic. That's the work that is therapeutic. That is what helps you move through this system day in and day out. You know, we've seen a lot of names and I've always asked myself, what was it about George Floyd's murder? What is it about this point in time that made everybody wake up? And as you guys know, I love to think through analogies. And I think for some folks who have a very different experience with the police, I equate that to folks that I would see across the years that believe that aliens are real, right? And they show you these pictures of spaceships and they show you these pictures of aliens. You can even think about people who had Bigfoot sightings, right? And you look at that and you're like, oh no, that's really a spaceship or is that a satellite? Or I don't really know if that's an alien or if that's just somebody in a different kind of costume. But if you were at home and you watch somebody capture a real live alien for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and you would say, oh, snap. Have every time that someone talked to me about an alien sighting, was it real? And I think for some people who have never seen the double face of the police, they see officer friendly and people come through their neighborhood or they know someone, they have a family member. They think, no, it can't really be. Something must push people to this limit to respond with such an excessive use of force. It has to be something else happening because I know that police officers are this. And then when you watch a man that is handcuffed, that is laying on the ground, that is not posing a threat and begging for you to just get up off his neck. You then say, oh my goodness, was this like this with Mike Brown? Was this Philando Castile? Was this Brianna? You know, like you start to think about all of those names. And I think white people in particular are saying, oh snaps. Maybe I've been explaining something away because it isn't my reality. And now I'm willing to look from a different lens because I've seen it. I've seen it happen in real time over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And now it's like, we got to do something about this because this is problematic. Because they know that their children are no more safe in this environment than my little brown children. If we allow this kind of barbarianism to exist and a taxpaying system, such as policing or education. You have a beautiful boy, young son yourself, who's so full of energy and life. And I wonder as a mother, how's your son impacted by these events? I have learned through talking to my son that so much how this work has impacted me that he also feels it, right? He might not be able to name it yet, but his check-in of, you know, mommy, are you okay? Or mommy, why are people marching? Mommy, you know, why are people saying they can't breathe? You know, he has questions about what's happening in this moment of time and specifically around him not going to school, right? He's six, he wants to go to school, he wants to see his friends. 
and some of his friends are returning to school. But you and I know uh, what the data looks like for African-Americans and Latinos for COVID. And so thinking about how do I break this down to a first grade level so that he feels like he understands a little bit. And then also this desire of mine to protect his innocence and allow him to be a six-year-old and not right now be burdened with race or racism and oppression. Because there are so many other little kids that are just getting to play, that are just getting to live their little six-year-old lives and not having to sift through this. So that's the struggle, right? The struggle is, yeah, I know the conversation is coming, but I did not prepare, was not prepared to have a conversation about race and racism with my six-year-old, nor do I think it is appropriate for him to have to navigate that. That's what I'm here for. And so I think when you hear the level of urgency, particularly from parents or educators or just people of color, it's because we look out and we say, man, this has been tough on me. And I want racism to get its proverbial knee off of my neck. But if I for one second think about it, having somebody having a knee on my baby's neck, then you see mama bear come out. And I think that's what you're seeing with a lot of parents in this space, a lot of black educators and leaders and our allies, because we are saying, if you love me, if you care about me, if you are my friend, then I do need you to transition, like become an ally, be cover for me, because I'll be damned if this system puts his knee on my son, on his possibilities, on his dreams, on his future, on his life capacity, Mm-mm, not having it. And so that's why it's so important and urgent. And this is why I love spending time sitting here talking to you guys with Swift and and pushing it out to other people that I wouldn't have an interaction with talking to because we need everybody's expertise at the table. We need everybody's thought leadership and collaborative spirit to be around this table to help us all think about in our sphere, which is education, how do we do this so the school system isn't putting their knee on the necks of kids that have disabilities, of kids that are English language learners, on kids that are low income, on kids that are black and brown, on kids that are LGBTQIA. We've got so many disparities in our system and we don't tend to see our system as that knee. So we should be very careful about pointing our finger at police or police officers when we've all got some knees in our work that we can pull up off of people. So important. And, you know, first, amen. I mean, it's just beautiful commitment to your child and his protection and his life. And, and then also turn that lens back on yourself and on your own system to say, okay, we are in a monumental moment of change in the world right now. We have a moment. We, are, we have to change, period. Too much has transpired because of the pandemic and because of the death of so many people of color that this change is here. And to have that time is really powerful. If you had a hope for education, what's your hope as we close out today? If I had a hope for education, I would say, I hope that we do the hard work so that education can be the great equalizer we know it to be. I want it to match our 
democratic ideal of what we believe education is supposed to do for all of our kids. I want that for all of our kids. And so uh, my hope is that we will not run. We will put on our armor. We will gather our army and we will do the work to change the system and to right size it so that it can become a more perfect system. Thanks for listening to Swift Unscripted, a podcast produced by Swift Education Center. We invite you to comment on what you heard and to visit our website, swiftschools.org, where you can find more stories of school-wide transformation and resources to start your own school transformation. Swift Education Center is a research and technical assistance center located at the University of Kansas.